Don't be fooled by the windmills and tulips. The Netherlands is a complicated place, and it certainly can't be easy to be the tax authority there. Not that we're feeling sorry for the Dutch Ministry of Finance. For such a small EU country, the Netherlands punches well above its weight in the global economy. In fact, according to U.S. News & World Report, the Netherlands received $80.8 billion in net foreign direct income in 2016, and the Netherlands Foreign Investment Agency reports that about half of the country's gross domestic product is derived internationally. So obviously, tax authorities here want to attract multinational companies and their taxable profits. And they've been so creative about doing so that the Foreign Investment Agency's website openly declares it a, quote, supportive corporate tax structure. But with the OECD and the EU Commission and just about everyone else cracking down on tax evasion and avoidance, could it be time for the Netherlands to be, well, a little less supportive? Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of the Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And have we got an interesting episode for you today? I know, I say that every week, but have I been wrong yet? Today, we're talking about transfer pricing in the Netherlands, which some groups, like the Obama administration and more recently the EU parliament, have unflatteringly dubbed a, quote, tax haven. A label the Dutch government naturally disputes, although we do hear some Dutch political parties are inclined to agree. But at the very least, the Netherlands has to own up to its role as a, quote, conduit jurisdiction, a fancy term for a pit stop for tax dollars on their way to low or no tax jurisdictions. After all, the country has helped many multinational companies. Hello there, Google. How's it going, Starbucks? Save billions of dollars legally, of course. Pretty impressive indeed. Today, straight from the tax haven, we mean the Netherlands. We have Cross-Border Solutions Netherlands expert, Senior Counsel Tax Advisor, Hosker Hugenberg. And he, along with Chief Economist Mimi Song, will be getting down to business. Of course, you can earn CPE credits by listening to this podcast. Fiona, would you like to tell us how that works? Why, yes, Matt. It's so easy, really. Our brilliant writer plants two CPE code words in this podcast. Send both words to me at thefionashow at xps.i and I'll reply with your CPE certificate. You said it, Fiona. It really is so easy. Now, before we get going, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. You can push the envelope, a shopping cart, and even iPhone notifications. But can you push filing deadlines? Yes, just ask Argentina. The Argentine tax authorities, also known as AFIP, are postponing the filing deadlines on some pretty imperative transfer pricing requirements. We're talking local file, master file, and local forms for fiscal year periods that ended between December 31st, 2018 and July 31st. 2019. I know what you're thinking. Why is Argentina pushing its deadlines? And here's your answer. AFIP is waiting for the go-ahead to implement new transfer pricing changes. The latest filing dates are right around the corner, April 20th to 24th, 2020, and are determined by taxpayer's ID number. Iceland just got a little icier, for taxpayers, that is. The country's Ministry of Finance and Economy proposed a draft bill that would introduce new penalties to MNEs who failed to abide by transfer pricing documentation requirements. And time is of the essence. As it stands now, the Director of Internal Revenue can enforce administrative penalties if documentation is not submitted within a 45-day window of the request. The damage, 3 million Icelandic corona per year, which comes out to right around 21 $0.5,000 US. Companies can be fined an additional amount up to 1.5 million Icelandic corona or approximately 
$10,800 per year U.S. if documentation isn't filed and settled within 45 days. On the bright side, the penalty ice can be thawed sooner than you think. Rumor has it that fines will be cut by 90% if noncompliance is solved within 30 days, 60% if solved within two months, and 40% in three months. The stock market isn't the only thing that's taken a nosedive lately. India's faith in BEPS is plummeting as well. At the India Tax Forum, Kamlesh Varshney, Joint Secretary of Tax Policy and Legislation at the Finance Ministry, said that the BEPS project has failed to confront base erosion and increased tax revenue since 2015. While India has pumped the brakes on BEPS, it's hitting the gas on pillars one and two, somewhere between fast and furious and driving Miss Daisy, with some reservations over pillar one proposals on how to tax the digital economy. Varshney is emphasizing the importance of countries coming to an agreement on the proposals by the end of the year, but also isn't wasting any time thinking ahead for his own country's tax interests. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp all right well hasker welcome we're really excited to have you on the call i'm wondering first and foremost what are the biggest changes you've observed in transfer pricing since you started your career well you know you have to remind you uh, i started in the mid 90s um and uh, as a tax advisor in the, uh, you know, in the Amsterdam practice of, at the time, Coopers and Librand, uh, currently PwC, obviously. And at that time, transfer pricing really was not much more than an afterthought in the tax advisory practice. You know, I mean, the overall practice in, in, in the Amsterdam office was probably around 150, if not more, tax advisors, of which maybe there was one that was doing transfer pricing. And, wow. you know, transfer pricing documentation requirements were pretty much unknown at the time. Um, and now if you look at that, you know, in the current environment, you know, transfer pricing is at the forefront of the international tax debate. And, you know, all multinationals have to comply with TP documentation requirements in most of the countries in which they operate. Um, and obviously, you know, for some companies, their transfer pricing is under uh, heavy scrutiny by tax authorities in, um, in countries. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So 
on a high, uh, on a general level, what advice would you give to multinational companies, or have you given, I should say, to give multinational companies um, time and time again? Well, you know that that transfer pricing and you know the transfer pricing policy and you know, a method you apply should always be aligned with, you know, and correctly reflect, you know, commercial reality, the group business activities. Um, so to, uh, you know, it should correctly reflect what is going on within a company, you know. It it, it sounds like such simple advice, and yet. The, the reality of the situation is that not all companies are necessarily doing that or even following the the contractual terms governing their intercompany arrangements, right? Yeah, I mean, what you obviously have seen in, 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 in the past is that, you know, uh, certain companies were, were tempted to put intercompany transactions in place that, you know, existed on paper, of course, but if you then were to look at what was really happening on the ground, that you know that was not a one-on-one, you know, the same situation, and that uh, you know I think currently tax authorities are no longer accepting that already for a couple of years, and really look at you know I mean it's it's in the Netherlands it's it's always been you know a mantra of tax authorities like you know substance over form, so you have to look mm-hmm. at the overall substance of the transactions and not only of the, you know, looking at the, the form of the agreement or the formalities, you know, that are in the agreement to actually be able to, to look at how the transfer pricing between those two entities uh, engaged in a transaction should be. Sure, sure, sure. And, and more, the most important question about getting to know you, Hasker, here is that you're in the Netherlands, so what is one of the m- most important things that one must do when visiting the Netherlands? Um, well, maybe turn it around. One of the things maybe you should not do, which is, you know, <laughs> escape Amsterdam. You know, escape yeah. Amsterdam is such a hyped place, and you know, I've lived in Amsterdam for many, many, many years, and now, you know. Um, um, you know, our family lives uh, somewhat outside of Amsterdam, but you know, it is—it's become so busy in Amsterdam um, that um, you know, I would you know, strongly encourage people to, you know, also really visit the countryside. Um, you know, there are many beautiful places that you can visit that are really within an an, an hour's journey. You know, from from Amsterdam, assuming you know you stay in Amsterdam. But you know, we have an excellent uh, train network uh, that will bring you, you know, to the most amazing places uh, within the hour. I would say so. You know, enjoy the the beauty of the country and with less tourists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one thing I noticed when I was in Amsterdam is all the canal systems, right? There's there's yep. a lot of like waterways. One of the things I wanted to do is actually ride a boat. If if I'm not mistaken, there are basically taxi cab boats that take you from place to place. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that right? Okay. Yeah, I mean there, there I are. Cool. It's right. beautiful. I mean it's it's you know if you're still going to be in Amsterdam, one of the the most beautiful ways of actually well actually looking at the country or or at the city is by you know going on one of these canal boats. 
um, it, it does give you a different perspective to you know these uh, you know beautiful canal uh, houses if you're actually on the water compared to if you're just right. walking the streets uh, especially if you do that you know in the evening when all the lights are on it's quite quite enchanting maybe next time i'll definitely have to take a look at that so talking about our uh, our most inform- our topic of the day here which is the netherlands right we we all know the netherlands is a member of the oecd but when it comes to transfer pricing documentation and the current regulatory environment, does the country actually follow the OECD guidelines? Um, well, I would say basically it does. Uh, I mean, you know, the Netherlands always embraced the arm's length principle, which obviously, you know, is one of the key principles under the uh, OECD guidelines on transfer pricing. And... Um, you know when um, so so it also you know the Dutch corporate income tax act already for uh, quite some time I think uh, early 2000s uh, you know codifies that the arm's length principle applies to all transactions between uh, related parties and uh, so that already exists for many years I mean before that the Netherlands view was that it was not really necessary to include that because you know the way the overall system of the corporate income tax uh, um, works in the Netherlands already implies that uh, related parties should act at arm's length with each other. But, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it was 2002 with the introduction of Article 8B that it is now that it was also codified. So, and then, you know, I mean, following following the more recent uh, developments uh, over the last five years with, you know, the OECD Action Plan 13, um, you know, with introducing the local file, master file, um, TP documentation requirements, that, you know, has been adopted by uh, the Netherlands, uh, even specifically, you know, in the Dutch Corporate Income Tax Act, um, as well as the the country by country reporting, so I would say in in that sense, um, the Netherlands does follow the OECD when it comes to TP documentation requirements. Right, except the the Netherlands threshold for the master file requirement is actually different than the OE guidelines and specifications. I think OECD generally said 750 million euros or more for CBC master file reporting. And yet, the Netherlands looks at the requirement based on the revenue of the Netherlands entity. Yeah, it's it's you know it's the way it's been you know introduced in the Netherlands. Uh, Dutch government felt, or the Dutch Ministry of Finance felt, that 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 would be the most appropriate way of determining whether a a company would need to prepare a a master file, you know, in the Netherlands, um, and. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it yeah, it's it's a different way of looking at it. But yeah, I mean, I would I would say you know the, the plan of the idea of the Ministry of Finance was to to ensure that at least most of the Dutch-based multinational operating entities would you know have to prepare a master file. Uh, to also be available to the Dutch tax authorities. And just to interrupt very quickly to ask Fiona, Fiona, what are the documentation requirements in the Netherlands? MNEs with a global consolidated revenue of 50 million euros are on the hook for a master and local file. 
If your company has a global turnover of at least 750 million euros, then you'll have to submit a country-by-country -country report as well. All documentation must be prepared contemporaneously. And Fiona, can you tell us about benchmarking requirements in the Netherlands? The Dutch tax authority prefers pan-European benchmarks, and fresh benchmarking search should be conducted every three years. So, you know, given that the Dutch tax authorities clearly have a little bit more of an aggressive position, I mean, they're, they've lowered the threshold where it's a multinational is required to do the local filing or master file yeah. um, documentation. They also could request additional information, right? What kind of additional information are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, you. I mean, the way the Dutch revenue has always worked, and you know, that's also included in in the in the formal tax act, is that you know, really, basically, the Dutch revenue is entitled to request a company every piece of information that the revenue feels it is relevant or is relevant for the revenue to determine the um, you know the tax and the taxable income uh, of of that company um, and it's you know often it can be a debate uh, between the taxpayer and the tax authorities but you know that's that's for a very long time always been the you know, not only the approach by the authorities, but it's also, you know, in the Dutch Formal Tax Act that, uh, um, you know, the Dutch revenue is entitled to request all information it deems relevant. And, and that can include, you know, besides obviously now with, um, you know, the, uh, the local file, master file, TP documentation requirements, and as well as the country-by-country -country reporting, it now already gets a lot of information, um, but you know, on top of that, you know, um, it can request, you know, information on. Uh, it can request the management accounts or information on the budgets. It can ask um, to see minutes of shareholder meetings or minutes of board meetings. It can. You know, besides the intercompany agreements, it can ask for, you know, any other legal agreement that it, it feels it needs to, you know, be uh, aware of uh, or documentation. You know, really, in general, documentation that is expected to be available that, you know, document the decision-making process and implementation of transactions. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, so it's, a it, lot more. it's not limited. You information know, behind the scenes, right? They're going to ask you anything and everything that's relevant to understanding how you came up with that intercompany position, right? Correct. Yeah. Which, which kind of speaks to the potential, uh, uh, what people might perceive as aggressive nature of the Dutch tax authorities. I mean, you know, if we think about ten years ago, I don't know if anyone would have necessarily said that the Dutch tax authorities were aggressive. However, um, you know, these days, I, I, I think Netherlands is under the gun, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, for, for a very, very long time, I mean, the Dutch tax authorities were, you know, were very open. You know, you, you could have, as a taxpayer, you could have a very open relationship with uh, the tax authorities. You know, you could discuss positions in advance. They even have a, mm -hmm. um, an, an official program called... Uh, horizontal monitoring agreements whereby the taxpayer would prior to filing of its annual tax return 
disclose and discuss all open and or uncertain tax positions with the revenue and you know already you know agree on their, on those so that if and when you know the tax return was filed um, very shortly thereafter revenue could could issue uh, the uh, the final assessment you know i mean the reason behind it was also as well from from a a revenue generating perspective that it allowed the revenue to collect the taxes already at a very early stage when companies were filing their tax returns and and it also you know the great benefit for for taxpayers especially for corporates i mean it was introduced um uh, about oh gosh i guess uh, about 20 years ago 15 20 years ago first introduced with large multinationals that are really based out of the Netherlands, but later on it was made available to uh, you know also a lot of other companies, um, and and the benefit for 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 companies was obviously that you know you would you know you would get certainty on your tax filings very very you know uh, shortly after or even before actually the filing, and you would reduce you know the risk of you know, uncertain tax positions and, uh, you know, tax audits and the, you know, the uncertain outcome of a tax audit. But, right, which um, is probably favorable to a lot of multinationals as well in that, you know, they, they perhaps they, they, not only are there other reasons to be in the Netherlands, but now if you can get rulings in place or tax yeah. certainty in place, that was very favorable. But things have changed in the yes. post-steps world, right? I think the Netherlands was, being scrutinized for that sort of unilateral practice? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, the Netherlands got its fair share of, of criticism from, um, you know, NGOs and, and, you know, as well as uh, certain countries, um, but also, you know, here in the Netherlands by, you know, certain political parties of being too much on, you know, on the, on, on the same side as, as multinationals. So that it was more was more interested in, you know, attracting multinationals to actually create a presence in the Netherlands, than it was to be very critical on looking at their tax filings, uh, and and certainly you know with you know the the um, you know all the political media focus on tax evasion and profit shifting and the um, you know the action plans that that resulted from that from the OECD. The Dutch uh, policy on that has changed, and you know it's now becoming, it's trying to become more like you know the best student in class a little bit, and um, really mm-hmm. trying to uh, to argue that the Netherlands is, you know, is not only looking after multinationals, but is also, you know, really, you know, it's primarily focused on you know getting you know companies or especially multinational type of companies to pay their fair share of tax. Right, right. And and so they're adopting a lot of these practices, uh, especially that the OECD is latching on to, including understanding economic substance of the transactions and, and just making sure that, you know, to your earlier point, Hasker, the business realities um, are reflected in the commercial term right yeah yeah correct and also that that it's you know uh, quite recently actually the the revenue um, you know indicated that it is uh, you know revisiting 
you know, it's it's policy on horizontal monitoring agreement. So, you know, this whole process of agreeing everything up front or trying to agree up front to more a, you know, call it, you know, more old-fashioned way of filing tax return and then critically looking at the positions and, you know, raise questions. Um, so to yeah. to, again, you know, as part of taking away the idea that, you know, NGOs certain political movements still or have and still have that the Dutch revenue were, were more interested in, you know, uh, for, um, in, well, really getting multinationals to, to settle in the Netherlands and invest in the Netherlands yep, rather yeah. than being critical on um, reviewing the tax position. So they have become more critical and also in the space of transfer pricing, you know, I mean, um, uh, the Dutch revenue uh, over the last couple of years, uh, have certainly um, become more aggressive in, um, you know, challenging, really challenging, you know, the the TP methodologies by, I mean, as you said, really, you know, focusing in on a, what is the economic substance of the transaction? Is there really an alignment to the reality? Critically looking at the functions and the risks, and uh, and also, you know, in particular to intangible transactions. Uh, you know, reorganization yeah, sure. and financial services transactions. Yep. And and are there any particular industries that are more likely a focus of the Dutch tax authorities these days? Well, you know, it's it's um, you know, well because the Netherlands, you know, traditionally um, you know had a lot of uh, you know either global head offices or regional head office. So you know, there is obviously the the, the the focus on on you know uh, looking at at head office and recharge of head office costs etc um, and also the related intergroup services uh, and other activities that are performed by head offices uh, you know but also you know the the use of Dutch companies in uh, in transfer price structures whereby you know uh, uh, charges were going through the Netherlands coming from one entity mm -hmm. to the Netherlands and then from the Netherlands to another entity so they are becoming very critical on that especially if there is a lack of substance um, but of course also the Netherlands you know have developed a keen interest in uh, you know the tech industry and the digital economy uh, and, and looking at those companies that um, you know are engaged in that part of the industry sure Everyone's focused on the digital economy these days. Yes. And I'm going to interrupt here with our first CPE code word, and that word is canal, as in Amsterdam has been dubbed Venice of the North because it's home to 165 canals. And back to our conversation. I, so, I hope you have counted thing. I hope you've counted them because I, I haven't, so I couldn't be able to just but I trust you on that, Matt. Thank you. I appreciate that, Husker. It's probably approximately correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to transfer pricing, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, the Dutch Ministry of Finance had issued a, a new decree in 2018 with more guidance on things like the arms and principle the concept of DEMPI functions, right? You know, development, enhancement, maintenance, protection, exploitation, hard to value IP and low value added intergroup services. Uh, their guidance may not have, you know, been just restricted to what the OECD's perspective was um, with respect to these particular items. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think in, in essence, they, you know, in overall, they, they, um, they follow, uh, you know, the OECD guidance on that. But, you know, certainly when it comes to the, you know, the critical functions uh, related to uh, uh, to intangibles, you know, development, enhancement, maintenance, protection, and ex um, exploitation of intangibles, they, you know, they do um, um, follow that that approach, but they you know, very little bit by saying that, you know, said that you would need to put more weight into apply to the development and and, and the enhancement, you know, when assessing the, the allocation, as opposed to also, you know, putting the same weight as the, the maintenance, protection and exploitation. I mean, the OECD is not ranking the importance and so the Dutch, you know, do rank them a little bit and say, well, you know, these functions, you know, the maintenance, protection, and exploitation are less critical um, to the overall uh, value creation and, you know, potentially are easier to outsource, you know, whilst obviously, you know, still the, the IP company would, would, well, ultimately maintain right. the necessary control over these functions. Um, you know, it's, it's I, I guess that that has to do with, you know, yeah, there are obviously, you know, a lot of IP structures rooted through the Netherlands as well. And so I think they, they want to, uh, you know, not uh, unnecessarily, uh, um, you know, um, be overcritical to these functions. Uh, overcritical or perhaps even unnecessarily disadvantaged. Yeah. themselves in, yeah. in some ways, right? So we were talking about the Netherlands as a country that is used in a lot of strategic tax planning structures, right? Yeah. It's a conduit. And a lot of companies set up a holding company there. Now, the corporate tax rate of the Netherlands is actually 25%. I know that there's there's a little bit of a discount on the first 200,000 euros of profit, but nonetheless, it's, it's set at 25%. That's much higher than countries like Ireland or Bulgaria, right, which is 12.5% or 10% respectively. However, Netherlands still is a, a, the country where most multinationals have a holding company structure. So what are the benefits really of, of multinationals um, setting up a structure with a holding company or with an entity in the Netherlands? Why is it attracting so many investors if you will yeah i mean there is there is again there is a there is a history to that um you know i mean one of the key principles of the dutch corporate income tax act already for many decades is so-called participation exemption which means that actually dividends received from and capital gains realized from qualifying uh, shareholdings in subsidiaries are actually exempt from dutch corporate tax so notwithstanding that the standard rate now is 25%, on any such dividends and capital gains, actually, um, you know, the Dutch company does not pay any tax. Um, I mean, one of the underlying requirements is that the, you know, the, the profits realized at the subsidiary level uh, are actually, you know, uh, included in the taxable income and are subject to tax in that local country. So it's not that, you know, um, if the profits are generated in a, uh, a country with uh, with no corporate tax, that you can dividend them out tax-free to the Netherlands. But overall, participation exemption obviously, uh, you know, provided a, uh, a huge attraction 
to uh, to multinationals to use a, a right. Dutch company as a holding company, and that in combination with you know um, the Netherlands having a very extensive tax treaty network, which you know probably derives from the fact that the Netherlands has always been for decades and centuries actually you know a trading country it goes back to the East Indy Company, I, uh, I guess, in the 17th century or even 16th century. Um, so, you know, international trade's always been very, very important in the Netherlands. And, you know, the Netherlands has a very extensive tax treaty network. And in such treaties, you know, also the Netherlands has been always very successful in reducing, also having the, the other country reduce withholding taxes on, on such dividends so that the overall cost of uh, um, actually, um, you know, getting dividends out of operating entities through the Netherlands and then also with the Netherlands actually distributing dividends to its own parent, um, also at lower dividend withholding tax rates or even without dividend withholding tax rates, either under a treaty with a non-EU country or in the EU, there is no withholding tax on uh, dividends, um, really makes it a very attractive country. And, and the same goes for, you know, interest and royalty. Um, you know, the Netherlands has been very successful in also uh, negotiating very low or even 0% withholding tax on interest payments and royalty payments made from local countries into, you know, holding companies in the Netherlands. Uh, and the Netherlands itself does not have a withholding tax on interest and royalties, which then obviously made it very attractive to then, you know, act as right, a... Which is why we see Netherlands uh, in a lot of situations as the cash pool administrator, yeah. um, you know, acting as, as as a conduit for various intercompany transaction flows, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly the reason. So, you know, the, the, the interest, for example, would, uh, you know, would the interest expense in the local country would be uh, deductible. You know, under the treaty with the Netherlands, it would uh, not uh, attract uh, interest withholding tax or at a small, small rate, at, at a low rate. In the Netherlands, obviously, you know, it's interest income, but that is then offset by the, it is offset by the, uh, the subsequent interest uh, payment to the other group company. So effectively, in the Netherlands, there is uh, hardly any taxation on that transaction at a corporate income tax level. And again, the Netherlands does not levy interest withholding tax. So then the income, um, you know, the, the actual payment of the interest to often, you know, low tax jurisdictions where, you know, uh, um, the interest is paid to is not triggering any further tax. So yeah, that's, that's always been an attraction of the Netherlands. Yep, yep. And, and then historically, I think they, they offered the rulings as well. So to give yeah. certain tax position uh, guarantees or, or certainty, if you will. Yeah, I mean, there was, yeah. I mean there, was, there was always been, and I, I recall from my younger days when I was working uh, as a tax advisor to, you know, you would obtain rulings on the application. I mean, a ruling, and sometimes, you know, people misunderstand it a little bit, is that a ruling is is really nothing more than just a confirmation by the authorities that you know about the interpretation of the law 
of the tax law. But, you know, so you would be able to obtain rulings either on application of the participation exemption or on, you know, situations where you had loans going back to back or, you know, royalty structures going back to back through the Netherlands and obtain certainty about, you know, a small portion of um, income that you would need to, you know, um, right show in the Netherlands is income. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. What's the impact of Brexit on the Netherlands these days? I mean. It, it, you know, it does. Is there any impact, if at all, right? Um, I would say yes, there is an impact, um, and many would view it as a positive impact. I mean, of course, there are a lot of negative impacts to Brexit, which are non-tax related. You know, customs, mm -hmm. and you know how mm -hmm. the future relationship with the United Kingdom will be is still uncertain and might still have, you know, a a a negative impact on the country as such, but you know um, it, it also has uh, um, has a positive impact. Is that you know there are quite a number of companies um, that have now you know, also established a presence in the Netherlands because you know especially those organisations that you know do need to have a regulatory presence in the EU. Um, mm -hmm have set up companies in uh, in the Netherlands where in the past they you know had it in the UK but the UK no longer being part of the EU in order to get that you know regulatory registration in the Netherlands you know a lot of companies um, especially in the financial services industry you know had to look for countries where you know they could um, establish a presence and uh, you know obviously the Netherlands has been one of the com one of the countries that uh, has benefited from it, but also you know recently you know Uber has uh, has announced and is currently uh, you know creating a very large presence in in Amsterdam. Booking.com you know uh, is in the Netherlands, uh, and 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 more you know more historically you know a lot of the um, you know the, the high tech companies have a you know, quite a presence in the Netherlands. Like the Google's, right. well, Netflix, I mean, etc. It, it sounds like there's a there's a lot of good reasons why companies would want to open up shop in the Netherlands with you know, the special provisions with respect to the participant exemption, the extensive tax treaty, the lack of withholding on various types of payments, the potential for confirmation of intercompany positions, and then you know, not not to mention what you mentioned earlier about the really good infrastructure, right? And 
plus a beautiful countryside. So why well, not? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I mean, and, and let's not forget these, these non-tax reasons, you know, I mean, because they are, you know, all, well, as important, you know, we have a, the Netherlands has a, an excellent infrastructure, you know, Schiphol Airport is one of the largest airports, certainly in Europe. And, you know, especially also for people that, uh, you know, travel from either the U.S. or Asia Pacific, you know, that, that can use also Schiphol Airport as a hub for, you know, connecting to any of their businesses outside of uh, elsewhere in Europe. I mean, Schiphol has an a extremely large uh, infrastructure when it comes to direct flights from Amsterdam to, you know, uh, various European countries, uh, European cities, um, you know, many flights per day coming in and going out. Um, so that's, that's very important, uh, you know, and, and don't forget the, the Rotterdam uh, Harbor, the Amsterdam Harbor. I mean, the Rotterdam Harbor is one of the largest ports in the world. Uh, I mean, it's no longer right. the largest, but it used to be for, for a long time the largest port in the world, seaport. Um, so that that also attracted you know a lot of a lot of business to to you know um, establish a presence in the Netherlands as well. Um, right. And, so uh, so lots of positive points, but I was going to say there's also let's you know between us and our audience here there's also a little bit of a stigma associated with potentially where the Netherlands has been viewed as a tax haven. Yeah, Especially I mean, obviously, with the concept of the double Irish Dutch sandwich. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, the Netherlands was, would, would always and is always arguing that certainly the government that the Netherlands is not a tax haven and that it complies with, mm-hmm. you know, all tax uh, regulations uh, also set by the OECD and by, you know, it, it is not a tax haven. Uh, but it is obviously the perception that, uh, you know, other countries and, you know, NGOs uh, have about the Netherlands. And the Dutch government has always been very, on the one hand, very active in um, arguing against that. But on the other hand, also, over the last years, has become a lot stricter in, you know, um, allowing, especially, you know, letterbox companies to... Uh, to make actually use and benefit from you know tax treaties or other benefits that the Netherlands could uh, give, so they they have become very uh, a lot more strict uh, on that. Um, on the uh, the Irish you know sandwich double Dutch uh, sandwich, yeah, I mean that's that obviously was a you know a a a, a, a structure that uh, was used by. Uh, especially tech companies to... Uh, many companies, right? And, and also many <laughs> companies to significantly reduce their overall, uh, um, overall tax cost. Uh. Right. If I, if, if I have the stats correct, I think it was estimated that it cost the EU around 11.2 billion euros in potential tax revenue. Yeah. And then even Google alone transferred $22 billion through a Dutch company. So, which then was, went to a, uh, an Irish resident um, in no tax Bermuda. So, lots of opportunities, but I think now that there's, there's a significant crackdown on utilizing this type of very aggressive tax structure, right? 
Yeah, I mean, really, basically, you know, going forward, that that structure, uh, um, you know, no longer works. Um, I mean, as you said, Google, you know, made use of it, but they they recently announced that they uh, no longer make use of it. And I think, you know, that that will happen with, uh, you know, lots of other companies that that made use of it in the past that they, you know, um, feel that, um, you know, they are no longer should be able to uh, to make use of loopholes like that. You know, I think it also comes down to to reputation of a lot of companies. They feel mm-hmm. that, um, you know, they don't want to be on the front page of the Financial Times or even of the more you know, general newspapers uh, being accused of, uh, you know, evading taxes by, you know, being very creative on uh, on, on tax planning structures. I think, you know, as, as I said at the very beginning of the call, you know, uh, uh, tax and also transfer pricing is now, you know, in the forefront of the, you know, the, the tax debate uh, as it has been... Uh, um, you know, with um, within the media or you know at the at the political level, and a lot of companies you right, know right. feel that they don't want to uh, run that risk of reputational damage. Uh. Well, you know, companies as as well as countries. I mean, I think I mean to what we were just talking about before. The Netherlands doesn't want to be seen as a tax haven, and that's 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 also uh, a stigma that it wants to be disassociated with. In fact. Last year, they had published a proposal for anti-tax avoidance directive two, and the ATAD two. Can you tell us yeah. more about that? Well, I mean, it's 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 obviously an EU initiative uh, that um, you know really is is set up to to counter you know the practice of uh, you know, aggressive tax planning, making use of loopholes in you know laws of two different countries where either, you know, you take double deductions or, you know, the income is, is not taxable, whereas the corresponding um, cost uh, is deductible so that, well, the use of hybrid structures and all, all these type of planning that, that you know, was developed for, for, for a very, very long time, uh, that that really should no longer be uh, allowed. And, you know, the Netherlands... Like many EU countries, wants to wants multinationals to be very transparent um, and and show that you know, hey, this is how we operate, and and, and that also goes really goes back to you know the the transfer pricing documentation uh, requirements in conjunction with uh, country by country reporting. Is that uh, you know like the Netherlands, uh, but but you know all EU countries, and even, I would say, even, well, far beyond the EU, countries require multinationals to become more transparent on where they generate revenue and where they pay taxes. And that they should pay, you know, a fair share of tax in the countries in which they generate their revenue. And if I can just interrupt to ask Fiona, Fiona, what is the double Irish with a Dutch sandwich? It's an aggressive tax avoidance strategy used by large multinational companies. It involves shifting profits from an Irish company to a Dutch company and them to a second Irish company headquartered in a tax haven. This scheme has saved Emonies billions of dollars. But Irish legislation, passed in 2015, ended the use of this scheme, but established structures continued to use it until the start of 2020.
Yeah, you know, the double Irish um, sandwich uh, with the Netherlands, Dutch sandwich, really was a widely used strategy that let certain companies reduce corporate taxes on uh, especially license income virtually to zero. Um, you know, why the word sandwich? Because it was, you know, it was a double Irish company and in between they use a Dutch company. So, you know, that's why the name double Irish Dutch sandwich. So really what it was about was that it was mainly used by U.S. tech companies um, is that they, they transferred, you know, intellectual property, technology, you know, patents, whatever, and really whatever it was to a Irish incorporated company that was, however, tax resident in a tax haven, um, typically somewhere in the in the Caribbean. And, you know, subsequently, they would also set up uh, another Irish company and a Dutch company. And that, you know, Irish incorporated company, tax resident in a tax haven, would grant a license to the Dutch company. And the Dutch company, in turn, would grant a sub-license to the Irish company. And to the second Irish company, which was just a ordinary tax resident company in Ireland. And that second Irish company would then, you know, grant licenses to uh, non-US group companies. And, you know, these companies would pay royalties to that Irish company. Um, being deductible in the paying countries, um, tax deductible. And in the Irish company, then... You know, there's an obligation for that Irish company to then pay a license under the uh, sub-license agreement with the Dutch company, and in turn, the Dutch company had an obligation to pay a license to the Irish incorporated company um, resident in tax haven. So, what was the trick? You know, effectively, in the Irish, in the second Irish company and in the Dutch company, because they received royalties, but also had to unpay royalties. There was hardly any taxable income in those com- in those companies triggering you know taxes. So there was almost zero. Just on the small margins, there would be a, a small you know taxable income on that. And um, you know the Dutch company why was it used? Because the Netherlands does not levy withholding tax on royalties. So a payment to a Irish incorporated company that is resident in a tax haven does not trigger any withholding tax in the Netherlands, simply because the Netherlands doesn't know royalty withholding tax. Um, so the bulk of the income would then sit in that in the first Irish company resident in a tax haven, and it would pay no tax on it. So the effect of the whole transaction was that you know the uh, the income on the intangible asset, you know, virtually triggered no taxation. Um, whatsoever, whilst the, the payment made by the non-US operating companies, you know, was deductible as a expense, business expense in these respective countries. So really, Matthew, that, that is the trick, that was the trick, I have to say, about that uh, structure. It was killed already, you know, uh, uh, as a result of new legislation. In Ireland, um, they grandfathered it until, uh, you know, basically 2020, as we speak now. But there are already companies that, you know, under pressure of, you know, media uh, inquiries, 
decided to uh, already abandon it uh, earlier. I believe Google did so already in 2019, and probably other companies did as well. So that's that right. was the the trick on the you know double Irish Dutch sandwich. So the Netherlands these days has also been in, in trouble with the EU Commission for, for providing what EU Commission is saying is unfair state aid to certain multinationals like IKEA, Starbucks, Nike. It's it's been a, a point of contention these days. Why do you think that the Netherlands has been under such scrutiny? Well, you know, I think the EU um, has always already for a long period been very critical about the Netherlands and, you know, in particular on the fact that the Dutch tax authorities were, you know, giving upfront certainty on uh, um, or, or transactions or, you know, granting advanced pricing agreements um, where they argued that these advantages that the Netherlands or the Dutch tax authorities were giving to such multinationals were not available to other taxpayers and therefore granted a, a very selective benefit to that group of taxpayers. Um, and, um, you know, it, it for a number of years was, um, you know, really critically reviewing whether they could open up, uh, you know, state aid cases. So that really, you know, the fact that the companies, you know, were um, paying less tax of because of that advanced pricing agreement or, you know, obtained, you know, effectively meant state aid in um, about four or five years ago, triggered the EU Commission to a number of uh, state aid cases. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. the first two, and that's obviously not only in the Netherlands, you know, also, you know, the, I think the most famous one is the Apple case, and that's related to Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, and also yeah. in relation to actually Luxembourg and also Belgium, uh, that they um, they opened a couple of state aid cases uh, um, on on similar types of uh, transactions, but well related to the Netherlands, you know the the one uh, that they opened first was the Starbucks one, which was mm -hmm. really in relation to that the the Dutch uh, um, tax authorities gave you know a um, upfront certainty on. The transfer pricing that the company in the Netherlands paid on coffee beans, um, and that they saw so raw coffee beans that they would uh, buy, and then the use of technology for which it had to pay a license, so that effectively, you know, a lot of the income um, went via the UK uh, to probably some some low tax jurisdiction, um, and that really triggered the EU to open up a state aid case. Um, but interestingly enough is that um, in 2019, the uh, EU court ruled that case actually in favor of the Netherlands. So it, you know, um, actually um, not agreed with the EU on its arguments for uh, state aid. And it confirmed right. that the, uh, you know, the APA that the Dutch revenue and Starbucks concluded actually was at arm's length which basically meant that it was not a tax benefit that was granted only to that particular taxpayer. But, you know, given that the transaction was at arm's length, there was no benefit granted. 
And I'm going to interrupt with our second CPE code word, and that word is happy, as in according to the United Nations World Happiness Report, which surveys the state of global happiness. The Netherlands ranked number five in 2019 and has been in the top 10 since the first report in 2012. Don't worry, we hear the OECD has a plan for multilateral allocation of happiness, and that would be pillar number three. And Hosker, just for our listeners who might be less familiar... How much control does the EU Commission have over EU countries? To what extent, if any, are EU countries legally bound to abide by what the Commission says? Do you have about two weeks? Okay. To answer that question, I mean, because that that is the big, big political debate in the EU right now on ah. how power and authority, you know, should be or is already granted or should be granted to, and and we call it granted to Brussels. Because Brussels, right. that's yeah. where the EU Commission is actually based. And, sure. you know, in, I mean, the EU uh, pol- well, politicians and uh, government officials would argue that in order to, you know, be successful as a union and, um, you know, uh, um, we, we should have one political system. You know, obviously, you know, many countries have already one currency that results in a lot of or resulted in a lot of power already coming to the, uh, to Brussels but there are you know very strong political movements that are really arguing against it and actually really basically the brexit you know was a result of that where mm-hmm. the united kingdom through referendum argued that they did not want to have that you know loose of control uh, sure. to Brussels. And, but also in the Netherlands, you know, there are populistic uh, political parties that, uh, you know, uh, are really screaming for what they call an exit. So Netherlands exiting the EU. Right now, that's not <laughs> an, you know, a, a real topic, but yeah. And, you know, the same in, in, in France, you know, the, uh, um, I'm not sure whether you heard of her, Marie Le Pen of the Front National, which is quite a right-wing populist party, also, you know, was flirting with the idea of leaving the EU. I mean, Italy has been threatening to say, you know, we don't want all that power you know, going to the EU and, and, and the whole thing on the refugee uh, crisis. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's, a big, it's a big, hot political, you know, potato right now. So let's let's talk a little bit about the digital economy, right? So the Netherlands did not adopt the um, EU digital services tax. So I think the country sentiment felt there needed to be a global solution from the OECD. But is our understanding correct? The Dutch opposition party actually initiated a digital services tax of 5% on revenue from digital advertising, online sales, and the monetization of user data, but then it didn't pass, right? Yeah. So there's there's like two opposing perspectives here. What is actually happening? What do you think the Netherlands position these days is on the digital economy and the taxation of it? Well, you know, I mean, obviously, um, you know, the whole sentiment on on that DST, uh, digital service tax, uh, you know, obviously that debate also, you know, is happening in the Netherlands and it's 
in particular the more left-wing parties, political parties that you know strongly believe that the Netherlands should, uh, like France and Austria, um, you know, also initiate such attacks. I mean, the official position of the government, which is you know obviously supported by a majority in Parliament, is that the Netherlands should not on a standalone basis or together with a couple of countries introduce such a taxation because it would harm the Dutch investment climate uh, too much. So right. it would have a negative impact on the economy. Not that that means that the Netherlands um, is you know, strictly opposed to any such taxation because it, you know, and that's, that, that's my personal view. I mean, you know, also the Netherlands, you know, recognizes that with digital economy, you know, um, the, the, um, the normal ways of taxation um, probably are not sufficient anymore to, you know, have uh, companies pay their fair share of tax in the countries where they generate revenue. But they are very, very cautious of initiating something on their own, which then could harm the Dutch economy as it is so much depending also on international trade and, you know, carefully be building over the last uh, 30, 40 years, you know, this, this um, situation where a lot of uh, multinationals uh, have uh, economic presence in the Netherlands. So I think, you know, if and when there would be an OECD initiative that gets the support of all the members and will be introduced or an EU initiative, then it would probably support that but that again that's my that's my personal view it would not likely do that on its own or even together with only a handful of countries and as a matter of fact i think france is backing down on its earlier initiative under pressure by the trump administration understood i I think there are a lot of things that these different countries trying to put unilateral measures in place perhaps are getting pressure um, to take a more holistic approach. That was the whole intention of the OECD Best Action Plan yeah. and the, the guidance that's being issued right now. But nonetheless... Yeah, you know, so and, and, if the and the Netherlands is, yeah. is very active and supportive of the OECD in this respect. They, right. they play a very right. active role in all the negotiations on you know, tax measures you know, in these negotiations at the OECD office in Paris. So... Uh, you know, certainly yep. the Netherlands will, will support that. So to sort of wrap this up in a bow, if the Netherlands really wanted to crack down on tax avoidance, what do you think the Netherlands would have to do? It's already taking actions on, you know, trying to combat the structures where, you know, either interest and or royalties are, are flowing through the Netherlands you know, creating deductions in the source countries and the ultimate income being taxed nowhere, um, especially if those, you know, go through, uh, through letterbox uh, companies uh, in the Netherlands that have no, you know, substance uh, and there is no nexus. Um, so they're already countering that. Uh, I think they need to uh, continue to be very strict on that um, to uh, really take away the uh, the sentiment at uh, you know level of certain countries NGOs and certain political uh, political views that uh, you know, the Netherlands is uh, still supporting multinationals in 
evading taxes. So I think that's that's a that that's an important uh, initiative uh, that they uh, you know continue to, uh, to try and combat these type of structures. Um, you know, and 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 probably also uh, you know renegotiate certain tax treaties that you know uh, allowed because of the wording of these treaties to uh, you know, certain loopholes that uh, multinational is used in the past to uh, you know reduce um, um, you know taxation or reduce the tax cost. I mean that's that's obviously also ready to be combated by the uh, anti-tax avoidance directive uh, number two. Right. So right. by supporting that directive, I think it's going to be very important as well. Um, so more, I would say, in general, is for the Netherlands to, you know, continue uh, to cooperate with, uh, you know, the EU and the OECD to uh, to fight tax avoidance. I think that that's on the mindset of of many jurisdictions is to create a certain level of transparency uh, for multinationals that uh, are showing that they pay uh, their fair share of tax. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So it looks like tulips and windmills aren't even part of the attraction for cross-border business to the Netherlands. Who would have thought? Obviously, we're kidding there, but there are some great takeaways in this episode, the biggest being that even the supportive tax structure in the Netherlands is stepping up its game against base erosion and profit shifting. Wow. Uh, things just got real. Am I right? Well, here's some good news. We have time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know, and we're putting Hosker in the hot seat for a rapid-fire round of questions. Are you ready, Hosker? I'm absolutely ready. Professional advice you've been given that has resonated with you the most? Well, maybe not more general advice. You know, stay healthy, be happy, enjoy life. You know, the, the stay healthy one, you know, in the current environment is, uh, you know, is important advice for someone starting off in this industry yeah you know i think it is always essential that you know when you deal with clients that you understand the business of your client and that you listen you know that's crucial you listen to what your client or your prospect tells you you know, so that you understand their business, you understand their needs, what they want, what's important to them. And on that basis, you know, come up with a, you know, solution that adds value to them. Indeed. And if your friends had to describe you in three words, what would they be? 
I'm very afraid uh, that I'm too complex to be described in three words, Matt. That's, that's, that's <laughs> I understand the mysteries of 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 of, uh, of life. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you started your career? Actually, I don't know. I, it's it's probably too many things. You know, you learn so much when you progress your career, and and you know you get so much more experienced. Um, and, and, you know, you gain so much more knowledge that there are probably a ton of things that I, that, that I know I, I knew already now, that I know now that I already wish I knew when I started. So, right. so probably too much. And hypothetically, members of your team describe you as super smart and others super hardworking. Which one are you most proud of and why? Um, I would say super hardworking. You know, this is... If someone tells you, you know, you work super hard, it shows that you're, you know, you're very dedicated, you're willing to put a lot of efforts into your job and that it is important to you. You know, it, it reflects on something you actually do and that you can influence. Whether being super smart, you know, is in a way not something you can influence. You know, you either are or you're not. In many ways. But I've always found usually when anybody refers to the word smart, it's it's really what they mean is productive or, yeah. uh, you know, you, whatever your intelligence quotient is, it's more with regard to how it benefits them. And I get that. That's, that's you know, industrial education. That's what that's what, you know, the word is has veered off to. But it undermines it undermines the real value you'd get out of someone saying you're smart. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's super smart to me. Sometimes means uh, you, there's an indication that the person. Well, if you say someone is super smart, that it gives that person an excuse to be a bit lazy. And I think that's again personal view. There are not that many super smart people. You know, Einstein was very smart. Yes, but you know, a lot of other people are you know very knowledgeable and very capable. But that's also because they've worked very hard. You know, on being, getting educated, on, you know, getting trained, etc. And that, to me, has more to do with working super hard than being super smart. Oscar, uh, we just want to thank you for your time and expertise. This was one of my favorite Fiona Show episodes with the other 30-something we've published tied for an ultra-close second. If you've missed any Fiona Show discussions, don't be shy. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'll fill you in on transfer pricing every week. While you're at it, subscribe to our sister show, The Fiona Show, hot off the press, and we'll keep you up to speed on transfer pricing headlines from around the globe. This podcast was edited engineered and hosted by yours truly matthew Demello. this week's news was written by associate producer christy clements our executive producer marilyn mitchum strom writes our scripts what will we have for next week there's only one way to find out <laughs>